Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. Glad you're here with us. Um, This is not a revolutionary thought here that I'm going to give to you right now. Uh, But I I am not a fan of conflict. Um, Now, I I love to discuss ideas with people, and I'm even very comfortable disagreeing with someone. I mean, it's easy to be comfortable when you know you are right and they're wrong, but but, but conflict is something that, that really can sort of weigh on my heart. And, and you know, as well as I do, that there is a pretty big difference between debating an idea with someone and, and talking through those ideas and having a genuine disagreement that leads to deeper conflict. And it feels like in today's world, more disagreements lead to conflict than they do to discussion. We have been trained, I think, over the last several years to view those who disagree with us as our enemies instead of a friend who may just have a different idea about something. And when it gets down to the point of conflict, conflict uh, is really messy. It is a breeding ground for for fear and anger and anxiety. Now, I know that you may have a hard time believing this because I am so delightful, but I have found myself in conflict with several people in different times over my ministry career. And sometimes those conflicts ended with forgiveness and understanding, and other times uh, they ended in hurt feelings and broken relationships. At the congregation I was working with prior to coming here, I found myself in conflict with one of the members. Uh, I can't remember exactly what started the whole thing, uh, but I do remember that I knew that something was wrong and I didn't do anything to fix it right away. And, and you know, when, when something's wrong and you don't do anything to fix it right away, it just becomes bigger, more and more and more. Uh, so a couple of months went by, and, and, and both of us were affected by the negativity and awkwardness that kind of clouded our interactions. And so I finally decided, all right, this, this is enough. And, and I set up a meeting uh, with, with this person, and... I decided I was uh, going to be very gracious at this meeting to share how things had been affecting me and, and to kind of stand up for myself, which is not something that I do very often, or at least at that point, I didn't do it very often. But I wanted to enter this meeting moving on from the whole thing. Well, what I thought was going to be a meeting about how this person had affected me very quickly became a meeting about me and all of the things that I had done wrong. Uh, I was very much caught off guard by the level of anger that was being thrown my way, and it got to be so bad that I invited uh, my co-worker to come in and sit with us. He had been listening in the other room anyway, left my door open, and uh, because it no longer felt safe to be in this situation by myself. I ended up apologizing for everything, how she felt I had acted, uh, the things she thought I had done wrong, the assassination of JFK, all sorts of things. And at one point, I remember apologizing to her 
saying, I'm sorry that I am the way that I am. It's, it got to that level of ugly, to which this person replied, well, it stinks that I have to pay for how you are. When it was all said and done, I sat there feeling like uh, I had been run over multiple times. Um, and my coworker <laughs> turned to me and said, well, I think that went well. Conflict stinks. It's messy and it's hard to get through. Um, and you know as well as I do that when, when conflict raises up and, and, and feelings get involved and, and emotions play in, something that could have been just a discussion about something turns into something else that has a life of its own. And for me, at least, when there is conflict in my life, it affects me physically, emotionally, mentally. I feel anxious. My stomach hurts. I just can't. I don't like it. Now, we've already talked a little bit here about how much bigger the stakes can seem when a conflict arises within the Christian community. I mean, things get real serious real fast when there is disagreement around what God says or the direction that he wants a church to go. Person A believes one thing. They believe that the Bible says this is what you are supposed to do. Their parents and their grandparents have taught them that this is true. This is the word of God. This is what you should believe. This is what you should do. But person B believes something different. They don't believe that you have to do this thing. They have read the same passages, but they don't think the passages say what person A believes it says. And particularly when it comes to things about spirituality and things about God, when person A disagrees with person B, they have a really difficult time coming together to talk about the idea. Because you see, there is so much weight that put on who is right about this thing. Whether it's supporting foreign missionaries, having a kitchen in your building, having Bible classes, whether you can use instruments, what women can do with insert, whatever it is, there are so many things that person A and person B can disagree about. And these kinds of conflicts have caused communities to separate. They have torn apart families and friends. So this morning, I want to ask a very important question. What do you do? What should you do when there is conflict within the church? Because unfortunately, conflict is a natural part of life, but conflict doesn't always have to be bad. Conflict can give us some of our greatest opportunities for growth if we are open to it. The newly formed churches in Acts were experiencing tremendous growth through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The gospel message was going out, and people were responding to the love of God in Jesus. But there are a couple factors that I think sometimes we forget about. Number one, you have to remember that they didn't really know how to be a Christian community yet. They were figuring it out on the fly, based on the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the teachings of the apostles. 
But you know as well as I do that when these dynamics have to start working themselves out in groups of people, it can take a while to figure that stuff out. When you have to live it out in relationship with others. But there was another issue that, again, we overlook. For the first time, believers were coming from numerous different kinds of backgrounds. In other words, they were not all Jews. They were Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, people who had no knowledge of the law or the history of God's people. And this church was a real, real problem. While people had begun to accept that Gentiles could be saved, there was an an important question that had yet to be answered by the community. Okay, they can be saved, but do they have to become Jewish? Now to us, this seems like a trivial question, but you need to engage this discussion this morning because it's actually a really important one. So from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Now again, don't shortchange this conversation and dismiss it because you think this is about the Jews holding on to Judaism. It is about that, but it it is about so much more because it is raising a question about who can be a Christian, but deeper than that, what does God want a Christian to look like, and how do you decide that? So we need to clearly understand the issue at hand. People had gotten over slightly the hurdle of preaching to Gentiles. They could even accept from a biblical point of view that Israel's covenant included blessings to all the families in the earth because that's what God said to Abraham. So so there was this basis that Gentiles can hear the gospel. And Gentile believers were responding all over the place. But something that has not happened yet is that none of them were required to be circumcised in order to become Christians. So the question comes up, well, should they be? And these Jewish Christians, because remember, all the first Christians were Jews, went into these Greek communities, some of them, and started saying, well, in order to complete your salvation, you need to be circumcised. Now, why would they say this? Well, the sign of the covenant between God and Israel was circumcision. 
a sign in which Jesus himself participated. So, from the Jewish point of view, how could a Gentile possibly participate in the blessings promised to the covenant people? How could they be saved if they didn't participate in the seal of the covenant itself? So the one thing you need to understand is at the heart, this is not a conversation about racial exclusion, but about covenant inclusion. They understood it to work this way, so shouldn't it still work this way? Additionally, this question addresses the role of the law in the Christian life. Now, the moral law, such as embodied in the Ten Commandments, was never in question. Paul, for instance, constantly reminded his churches of God's moral standards in his letters. But there was more than just the moral teaching. There were the ritual aspects of the law, which presented a major problem to all these Gentiles who didn't know anything about it and these Jews who lived their lives by these rules. They were provisions that marked Jews off from other people. Uh, circumcision, the food laws, uh, ritual purity. These were the things that made Jews Jews. But these rules seemed strange and arbitrary to most Gentiles, and there was no reason for them to begin living their life this way. To the good God-fearing Jews, adherence to uh, the law, the Torah, is a way in which a Jew remains a Jew. So they began to struggle with the question of how could Paul and Barnabas just overlook all of this? All of this which makes us the people of God. And then it's worth noting Right? These questions come up in Antioch, and the church appoints them to go to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And when they get there, who steps up to ask this question again? Christian Pharisees, whose job is what? To teach and keep the law. So, the question was a very serious one to them. It's also a really serious question because circumcision presents a very unique problem. Are adult Gentile men going to want to become Christians if they have to be circumcised in order to do so? It seems like a bit much. I mean, God loves you, so now disfigure yourself. But can you just dismiss things that have been the defining characteristics for the people of God? So the apostles and the elders of the church got together with Paul and Barnabas to discuss this important question. Let's pick it up in verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed us that he accepted them by giving, them the Holy, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God 
by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Peter was the first to speak up, and he recounted to them, in short form, his experience with Cornelius. And if we look at that experience, we see that a couple of things happen. Number one, God gave Peter a new revelation. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. As he sits there on the roof looking at all of these clean and unclean animals. Then he experienced the Spirit coming on Cornelius and his family and comes to the conclusion that God only grants his Spirit to those that he has accepted and if God has accepted Cornelius and his family, then who am I to say they cannot be accepted? For the Jews, circumcision was a mark of sanctity and purity of belonging to God's people and being acceptable to him, but in Cornelius... God had shown Peter that true purity comes not by an external mark, but by faith in Jesus. He accepted him without Cornelius having to do any of these other things. And this is an idea that we have seen come up throughout the story of Acts. That God is the one who is making the decisions and the moves, and that it's not up to these individuals to decide who is in and who is out. God is the one who is including the Gentiles, drawing them into his kingdom. And we see it uh, with Cornelius. We see it with Saul's conversion when, when God spoke to him. Uh, we see it in Paul and Barnabas's experience in the mission field, even in the, in the words of, of Gamaliel of the Jewish council who said, if this is of God, it will succeed. And so the principle is that if God is working and doing things, that is the first sign that you should join where he is working and doing things, wherever it is, even if it is something completely different and outside of your experience. I mean, after all, a new revelation is new. So, How could then Jewish Christians demand anything more than what the faith of the Gentiles has already shown? To demand more, he says, would put God to the test, as if God needs to prove to them that these people are actually saved when God has already shown them all that they need to know. Furthermore, as those who believe in Jesus, they need to remember that it is not the law that saves them. Now, you need to understand something here, okay? Peter did not urge Jewish Christians to abandon the law, nor did they cease to live by it. Peter's meaning was that the law was something the Jews had not been able to fulfill. It wasn't their being circumcised and following the law that made them okay with God. The law had proven itself to be an adequate basis of salvation for them. Neither they nor their fathers had been able to fully keep the law and win the acceptance of God. They too were saved by faith. So isn't it okay that the Gentiles are saved by faith and not saved by something else? Paul and Barnabas got up next. 
And they talked about everything that God had done and how uh, Gentiles had come to believe in Jesus, how the Holy Spirit had come on them, and they sit down. They just give a short report. Then James, the brother of Jesus, who was one of the elders of the Jerusalem church and by most accounts had become sort of taken charge there, he got up. And James furthered Peter's position by giving it some scriptural grounding in verses 14 through 18. He, he recognized that God is making Jews and Gentiles the same people in Christ. But then he, he also acknowledged that th- there is still a problem in the room about w- what we do with the law and particularly what are Jewish Christians going to do who believe that following these rituals and things are still important. So this is what he says in verses 19 through 21. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that statement. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Okay, so here's what James does. The main point is this. Let's not make this harder than it has to be. And requiring them to be circumcised is making it harder than it has to be. Like, I get why we're hung up on it, but it's too much. As has already been shown, God was moving and changing lives. However, if Gentiles were not being required to observe the Jewish ritual laws, how would Jewish Christians who maintain strict law observance be able to fellowship with them without running the risk of being ritually defiled themselves? So in other words, If the Gentiles were doing things that would make them unclean under the law, what would Jewish Christians do who are trying to stay pure under the law? You can't just, you want them to be one community, right? So you can't just have like a Gentile side and Jewish side. That doesn't really help. It just furthers division. So his idea that he comes up with is that Let's just have them do these four basic things. They are to abstain from food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Uh, Meat offered to idols was an abomination to Jews who avoided any and everything associated with idolatry. Strangled meat referred to animals that had been slaughtered in a manner that left blood in it. Blood was considered sacred to the Jews, and all meat was to be drained of blood before consuming it. The prohibition of blood came under the same requirement, uh, referring to the consumption of the blood of animals in any form. So it wasn't like they were saying, don't drink blood, necessarily. All of these things, though they may not have been Gentile things to do, were important to the Jews. So they basically said, You don't have to be circumcised, but follow these four things. Because these things are important to your Jewish brothers and sisters. 
So everybody agreed to these terms. This sounds like a good plan. And so they wrote a letter and they sent the letter back to the church in Antioch, which, remember, is where this started, people coming in saying, you have to be circumcised. So in verse 30, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Okay, you may not realize it, but you have just read one of the most extraordinary stories in the book of Acts. I know. I know. You, you think I'm full of hooey. I'm not. I am full of truth. Because in this story, you see a group of Christians handle a very serious, even emotional issue with love and wisdom and godliness. It can happen. It can happen. So what do we learn from them? Number one, and I think perhaps the most important thing, is this could have started off really badly. These Jewish Christians, remember, traveled to Antioch to tell these Gentiles they had to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas were there, and they get into a disagreement. But keep in mind who these two parties are. One side, they're not saying you can't be Christian. They're saying you need to do this in order to become Christian. And this side is saying, well, no, they're already Christian. They don't need to do that. And they cannot agree on this. So what do they do? The church sends them to Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem are the people who can help them figure out how to answer this question. They did the first thing right. Which is, we need to get to the bottom of this. And we can't do this ourselves. But... Here it comes. You ready? We want to know the truth. We want to know the truth. And it's going to take more work to get to the truth than just you saying it's this and you saying it's that. That sometimes is the biggest hurdle we have to overcome, honestly, is wanting to find what is true even if that truth might be different than what we think it should be. And there's a certain level of commitment to community and to God and to getting it right by showing you're willing to put that aside. Secondly, they listen to their leaders. Uh, I know this seems like a gratuitous point (laughs) here, But they trusted that those who were called to lead were called by God and therefore could be trusted to speak into the situation. Leadership within the church, hopefully, ideally, is filled by those who love and serve God. 
And when you go to them, you are not going to them to say what is right and what is wrong. You are going to them to say, what does God want us to do in this situation? Right? So many times we are trying to disseminate these things down to what's right and what's wrong, and then that means this, this person is right or this person and this. But we see here that in community, it takes more than that. And you have to go to people that you can trust. And I have been around long enough to know that sometimes churches trust their leaders and sometimes they don't. I can remember one leadership team I was a part of. The people didn't always trust the leadership, so much so that they would approach me on a Sunday morning and say, why didn't we pray about this today? And I said, I didn't know about it. But they assumed that I had chosen not to pray about it. These things happen within churches. But the leadership should be formed and called by God, and as such, you need to listen to your leaders, which is what they did. But secondly, and just as important, they left room for revelation. The answer that they came to was a new answer. Do you get that? It wasn't just that, no, you don't have to be circumcised, or yes, you should be circumcised. The answer they came to was a new answer. You don't need to be circumcised, but you should do these things for the sake of community. It's, it's a new path. Now, look, new revelation is scary. Because when, if we are going to accept a new revelation, we have to ask ourselves some questions we don't like. For example, will God accept someone that looks different than me? Will God accept someone who believes God requires something different from them than I think he requires of me? And here's the tricky part, which we don't know we're doing. If I believe that that's possible that God requires something different from them than I think he requires from me, then what does that say about me? This is why we fight so hard over it. Because we're afraid about what these things say about us. Well, was I wrong? Was my father wrong? Was my grandfather wrong? Have I been living a lie? We always tend to want to direct these discussions back to ourselves. In order for us to feel legitimized, we need things that are different to be delegitimized. But they left room for newness, for a new understanding, for a new conclusion, that God would guide them to that, and God did. Thirdly, their revelation, this newness, was confirmed by their experience. They didn't have to just guess at it. God had been showing them all along, hadn't he? That these people are okay. They're going to be saved. They are saved. Let them come. It's all right. You have seen God do something unexpected. And it's hard to argue against God moving and changing lives. But it does give us a valuable message. If God is going to lead us to new revelation, he's going to lead us. And he's going to show us what that thing is. You know, new revelation isn't like closing your eyes and putting your hand into a box to pull out a random piece of paper. 
No, it's God moving around you and doing things and changing things till you finally come to this new conclusion. These people are coming to God. So how do we bring these communities together? And lastly, you can test it by Scripture. You should test it by Scripture. And here's something that is so great about this example. They looked at Scripture and they understood the covenant of God and how circumcision and all these things kept them in covenant with God. But they also understood how God was bringing the world together. How many times have we looked at the sermons of the apostles in the book of Acts and they've pointed back to Moses and Abraham and David and everyone else showing everyone that this is God's plan all along, that the gospel would go out to the world and that all will be saved. So here's what's crazy, all right? Even though the conclusion they came to was that They didn't have to do this thing which had been commanded so long ago. Choosing not to do that thing did not undermine who God is, how God was working, what God wanted, or even what a Christian should look like. Do you see that? And this thing was important, people. The mark of the covenant And they could walk away from that and know that God is still God and is still moving and working. Now listen, this was not easy. You read the letters of Paul, guess what he talks about a whole lot? Circumcision. And eating food, sacrificed to idols. And all of you see it come up over and over again. Why? Because people struggled with it. It was hard to move on from these things. Now, so, dealing with conflict in community, how do you do it? You gotta be open to finding a solution, not just proving you're right. You need to go to people, leaders, elders that you respect and you know will bring wisdom to the situation. You need to be open to newness. But look at your experience and see what God has shown you. And look at the word because the word will guide you. Now look, that's not going to fix every problem. (laughs) Ironically, at the end of this chapter, we see two people part ways because they can't agree. From verses 36 through 41, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so even if you go through all this stuff, are you always going to agree with everyone on everything? And here's what we see in this particular example. This is personal, meaning Paul was not happy with John Mark because John Mark had ditched them. Barnabas wanted John Mark to go. They refused to budge, so what did they do? They split ways. 
But God worked through both of them. Because you see, the gospel actually then went two different directions. The same gospel. But it went to more people. And Paul wasn't able to go back to all the churches. But the ones that he didn't go to, Barnabas covered. And so, and we know also that Paul later reconciled with John Mark and with Barnabas. This was not a lifelong, but they parted ways for this time in order for them to go and do the work of God. Now, sometimes things are too messy and are too much of a struggle, and you can't come to the same place. But I would like to recommend that nowhere within this telling do we understand that Paul ever said Barnabas was no longer a child of God, or that Barnabas said he could no longer have fellowship with Paul, or that, you know, some of those steps that we take in conflict, none of that is present. Instead, they parted ways only to come back again later. I don't like conflict. I don't like conflicts. But it occurs to me this morning that the conflict we experience as a community, the conflict that we experience with, none, with one another, maybe is the vehicle that leads us to the newness that God wants us to have. After all, if we never have any problems to solve or questions to ask, aren't we just going to stay in the same spot? So, we need to maybe pray then that God makes us uncomfortable. That God raises questions to the surface that need to be answered, that are based on the things that he's doing around us. And then, I'll tell you, church, one thing about this community, this group of people, is that I believe we are committed to working through things together. I believe that. Because I've seen it, and I've experienced it. So may God raise up questions that we can answer together. May God help us to see new opportunities wherever they may be, and may we be smart enough to go work with him wherever he is. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that we see here in the book of Acts. I'm grateful for seeing this group of people come together to answer a really difficult question, but to seek you out and to come up with something new. God, I'm grateful that when we listen to you, when we rely on you, that you help us find our way through difficult things.